I was raised on the largest transnational oil corporation in the world, on the eastern province of Saudi Arabia. It was protected by a U.S. Air Force base, a Saudi air base, in compound security, mm -hmm. the CIA, and uh, and the secret Saudi secret service. Mm -hmm. And so, I have sort of an interest in the mechanisms of surveillance that we all deal with on a daily basis today. Page 21 refers to a particular character uh, who is, it happens to be an ex-flight engineer who gets fired from his job. And one night he hears a very loud sound. So he goes out into uh, the fields, to a nearby set of fields, and um, he, he comes upon a large spherical presence. And he straps it up and drags it back into his workshop and starts tinkering away at it. And that spherical presence is what we see or we would have seen if you had gone to the Biennial yeah. Museum. Collage allows for uh, the ability to take what was previously made, so the past, mm -hmm. um, and to be able to uh, cut and splice that um, in order to make new histories and in order to perhaps even foretell the future. And so as a medium, it has the ability for transformation in a sense or to be able to see things in, in a different way. And not only in a different way, but in a way that could never have perhaps been explored before. And so my relationship to cutting things up and reconstructing them um, is not only just to tell a new story or a new history, but it, it's the action itself. For episode 14 of the Art Talks Montreal podcast, I spoke with visual artist Hajra Wahid. We met at her studio, and I started by asking her who were her favorite artists. Some of my favorite artists, you know, no one's ever asked me that question. Or, <laughs> or uh, yeah, people that inspired you when you first started um, making. It's, it's funny because some of the, the artists that I will say that I gravitated towards at a, at a young age, I gravitated towards, but I had experienced that uh, in, in a completely different context. Mm -hmm. I was raised on the largest transnational oil corporation in the world, on the eastern province of Saudi Arabia. And it was a strange place because it was a place where um, that was highly protected and highly surveilled, where uh, it was protected by a U.S. Air Force base, a Saudi air base, in compound security, mm -hmm. the CIA, and, uh, and the secret, Saudi secret service. And um, it, was, it was a strange place also because it looked like a 1950s gated suburb in California, some, anything sort of similar that people would see that would be a Don Mills of Toronto or a, a gated Levittown in California. And so um, having been raised in this place that looked, uh, that had been a, sort of a transplantation of the suburban phenomenon that was yeah. so widely um, seen and made use of in the 1940s 50s, and 50s, 40s, yeah. yeah. California painters became sort of a place to go, at least when I was studying art. I mean, before then, 
Um, Once you had left that compound, because you studied at the Art Institute of Chicago. Right, exactly. So having left that environment that was this yeah, idea and of physical had, space. Exactly, and having spent many years away from that as well mm-hmm. helped me to sort of, um, through through these other works, gave me a certain sense of, uh, of understanding mm-hmm. space and place and home. And as distance and how different these artists were coming towards that environment, um, I felt like a, a really strong relationship to, to it at the same time. You've talked about having a preference for mediums or surfaces that presuppose a previous history. In particular, what comes up in like interviews or what people have written about you is this package of postcards. It returns many times that you've used in different ways. And I was wondering if you could talk about those types of materials, this, yeah. pre- this idea of presupposed history. Yeah. The backbone of my practice tends to be works on paper, but ultimately I, I work across mediums and I enjoy collaborating with others and I enjoy challenging myself to explore tools and languages that are that are that are actually ultimately unfamiliar to me in order to convey these stories and so the materials that I tend to be either gifted or that I find are the ones that I use they are uh, materials that as you say have a presupposed history Um, and by that what I mean is that time has planted or implanted uh, or imprinted on these materials, whether they are old or aged paper or expired film or photographs or files or objects. A few years ago, I was gifted, a friend had, had gifted me a deck of 100 postcards, okay. uh, photographic postcards from the 1930s and 40s that his grandfather had taken, and I was told to make something with it. And so I decided that I was going to start cutting them up and reconstructing them into what has turned into sea change, mm-hmm. which is a novel. <laughs> the novel-like work. Right, yeah. and the, uh, it, which is a visual novel in which nine, there are nine missing characters who go missing by sea in the name of salvation, a better life or a new one. And over the course of all of these works, um, are not necessarily found, but are revealed. Your body of work doesn't really adhere to any single discipline. There's this openness in form that echoes the way that you experiment with narrative, like bringing stories to life. It's like you're finding different ways of telling stories. Could you describe what your practice is? Um, Well, how would I describe my practice? I would say that I have a preoccupation with undisclosed documents. And um, my work tends to uh, look like secret notes or ciphers. It has a really distinct minimalist formal aesthetic where compositions are often sparse mm-hmm. and centered uh, with images and text arranged as if they are in code. Um, and I've been working in this way ever since I can remember, ever since I was a child. Um, I catalog and categorize and reorganize fragments into multiple works within a series. And so when you go into a space and you see works, they have a certain sense of that they, they tend to be organized almost like in a museum, yeah. like archive, the way they're a particular displayed. display. So I, in my work itself, as much as I am trying to uh, tell these stories by taking fragments and uh, splicing and reconstructing them, I am also trying to categorize them and organize them in a particular way in mm-hmm. order to tell these narratives. So 
there's a there's a certain kind of order to the chaos and I think that a lot of the uh, the way in which I work um, is very particular because I find that there is so much chaos <laughs> and how <laughs> do you make sense, order. make sense of it is is something that I probably will spend my life doing so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. maybe these, that's what it is <laughs> these bodies of work continue and continue and continue um You've talked about the archive as well, and, and the materials we use suggest that the work is finding gaps in history and maybe restoring lost narratives, but that's not exactly what's going on. I wonder what you think about the archive and in what way your work is non-archival. Well, I consider the archive to be a really complex term, especially used um, at a wide range at a varying degrees in so many different practices. Um, and in so many different ways today. For me, I suppose in some ways I can use it by saying that I um, perhaps at some level t- developing a personal archive only in the way in which that I am uh, documenting a lot of uh, stories and oral histories that um, were not documented mm-hmm. um, or have not been documented that um, I feel are necessary to this is my interpretation yeah. of putting it on, but it feels as though you're drawing them out of these collages or this um, bringing together of different materials, and it's not so much doing the kind of research where, I don't know, you find that interview that's been lost. It's, it's, an, act, it's an act of creation, maybe. Like, it's documentation and creation at the same time. Absolutely. And, and I think that it's a certain level of agency in, in, in creating a new kind of history from what was previously told. And I think that collage, for example, is a really great medium for that because collage allows for uh, the ability to take what was previously made, so the past, Mm -hmm. um, and to be able to uh, cut and splice that um, in order to make new histories and in order to perhaps even foretell the future. And so as a medium, collage feels like it's has it has the ability uh, for um, or has the ability for transformation in a sense or to be able to see things in in a different way and not only in a different way but in a way that could never have perhaps been explored before and so my relationship to cutting things up and reconstructing them um, is not only just to tell a new story or a new history but it, it's the action itself. Yeah, it, it's a, an action in which we can break what came before as it, a means of, of sort of introducing what is to come. Mm-hmm. I like, I like how time operates in the work that I've seen, um, and it seems as though the past and the present and the future converge in these strange ways because of how you use the materials and they create new stories when they're put into the gallery space or when you make work. Maybe we can move to talking about the, the Montreal Biennale and the sure. work that you had, the work that you had in there called KH21. Yeah, I, I would say that um, over the 22 years that my family spent there, it was forbidden to take any photographic, uh, public photographic and video documentation of the area. So not being able to freely document a place that I called home for so long has to some degree developed an obsession for me within my own practice to do so. Mm-hmm. And so I have sort of an interest in the mechanisms of surveillance 
that we all deal with on a daily basis today. Um, Cage 21 brought together various elements, um, including 32 works on paper and a sound yeah. sculpture, and it represented the, uh, this really exciting opportunity to actually work and collaborate with local musicians, mm -hmm. um, local blacksmiths and metal workers. Mm -hmm. It's titled in code. Uh, Cage 21 makes reference... Sorry, before you go on, mm -hmm. it's a huge metal orb. Yes. <laughs> That's how it was presented, and then against the walls there were some small artifacts, framed collages. Is that it? Was there more? Well, uh, yes. Just to describe a, it, if you right, could describe it physically. Absolutely. So um, if you would walk around the space, you mm -hmm. would be looking down into a series of vitrines, mm -hmm. which housed 32 works on paper. Okay. Um, uh, and that looked as though they were open pages that had been pulled from a book, almost like a manual of sorts, yeah. um, or a personal uh, series of notes or diaristic notes. Mm -hmm. um, and then while you, uh, as you walked through the installation, you would maneuver or circumnavigate, should I say, around a large spherical presence, which was uh, uh, a 1200 pound steel uh, ball yeah. in, which, uh, in which there was a long um, gold mono, gold cord mm -hmm. at, and at the base of that cord was a monopod hearing device that yes. you could pick up that was sitting on a stool that you could pick up and listen into. And that monopod hearing device ha was on a 10 minute loop um, of natural diegetic sounds that actually relayed um, the story or the flight path of this fallen object. Continue. So Cage 21, the actual title, refers to the recently declassified hexagon program whereby 20 phot photographic reconnaissance satellites had been launched into space between 1971 and 86, and only one was said to have been successful. And so Cage 21 refers to a particular character uh, who is, it happens to be an ex-flight engineer who gets fired from his job and has to, um, and starts tinkering away in his basement of his garage. And one night he hears a very loud sound. Mm -hmm. So he goes out into uh, the fields, to a nearby set of fields, and um, he, he comes upon a large spherical presence and he straps it up and drags it back into his workshop and starts tinkering away at it. And that spherical presence is what we see or we would have seen if you had gone to the Biennial in the yeah. museum. And the sound component is the collected sound of that piece as it fell back to Earth. Oh, <laughs> so what that object would have heard or what the satellite would have heard as right. it was coming through the atmosphere. Right. And, and I think, you know, because... Because of my, my own relationship to surveillance has been a long one in terms of the level of surveillance I underwent as a child and now how that level of surveillance has shifted or transformed over, over the years into what it looks like today. Um, I think that, that um, my inquiries around this level of surveillance now deals with what is the civilian's role in that. How can we develop a relationship to this vertical occupation that we all live under uh, in a way that that empowers us as well? How can we gain access to information? So if we were to come across a defunct satellite or a mm -hmm. fallen satellite, 
what could what information could we gather from it yeah. how could we call that and how could we call that information for our own benefit yeah. I like hearing that because when when I was thinking about that piece which I I had the good fortune of seeing, even though I was surrounded by tens of people, it wasn't exactly the ideal situation. I was thinking about the sense of intimacy and distance at the same time. So there's all of these fragments and pieces, and as you approach them, you feel, you feel, yeah, an, an intimacy. There's something going on, and you don't quite know what it is. And the don't quite know what it is part is, is that distance. And it embodied them both. And for me, I was thinking about surveillance and maybe your childhood and how that came up. And I was reading it as this relationship to um, legibility and visibility. But the way that you're talking about surveillance is... Yeah, there's more agency in it. What can we do? How can we have access to the, that information? And in what ways? And it's interesting that you bring up the terms intimacy and distance. Mm-hmm. Um, the the first character of this, uh, there's another character that I'm developing. Um, all of these characters are actually um, part of a longer or larger narrative called or novel called Sea Change. So the first character is actually uh, a geologist and he is in search of quartz crystals so he's digging into digging at the earth yeah. while uh, the second character is actually um, exploring what's above and so it's this relationship to to what's below and what's above to relationship to geology and cosmologies mm-hmm. to to the into the significance of of um, something feeling as small and insi- something feeling so small and yet so large and incomprehensible, incom- and and I think that that plays a large role in my work and also in how I develop these narratives. Just um, and and these characters, their explorations are really mine, and I think that I tend to uh, whether it happens over hundreds of works, or not I I think it's my own exploration in a way, you know. So. You're on a journey with these characters, or at the same time as them. Yeah, I would say so. I think there are explorations that happen um, and that I could never sort of uh, see an end to in in a given moment. I think that so many of my own personal experiences play such a strong role in what work I tend to make in the given moment. And I think that that that's really important. Yeah, no, keep going. No, no. <laughs> I, had a, I had a question that kind of related to that, just that uh, a lot of the work seems like a, a cipher in that it's assembling all of these fragments through different materials um, meticulously, <laughs> very carefully. And yeah, photography suggests a direct equivalence, and yet in your work, your work avoids that. It doesn't have that kind of authority. This is exactly what's going on. And it instead creates this sort of opening that gives a possibility for, um, for the viewer to imagine, sort of to, to bring something in it and to complete it. And I was wondering if you could talk about the way in which the audience or what the audience sees is only a little bit of the story or they don't need to know the whole story. That, that's, that's what's important is that it's fragmentary. I think one has to be okay with not being told everything. And I think one has to be okay with being left with a series of more questions that may be answered in another set of works or may not be answered at all. So much of my work is, of course, left to interpretation, but it's very guided and it's, and it's, yeah. very, uh, it's, abs- it's very particular. It's... Uh, meticulously driven. Uh, what I include and what I take out uh, is 
heavily studied. I you and you feel that <laughs> it, it's there. Yeah, and and it's strange because so much of the time people um, um, viewers find themselves sort of can find themselves lost in the narrative, um, and other times when once you look at one work and then you look at the second set of works or or per, yeah, it all makes sense. Yeah, and and I think that that's sort of how my own sort of life <laughs> I mean I, you can think of this as sort of a as life lessons too yeah. you know you're you oftentimes will um, be approached with with issues um, or or struggles or or events that make no sense at all mm-hmm. and then um, one day uh, you're you um, you open the door of your house and all of a sudden something magical happens and it all makes sense. Things so, come together. And things sort of yeah. converge into into yeah. a certain sense of clarity again. Yeah. And so in, in that way, I, I play on that a lot. Yeah. Um, and in, in, in telling the story or in telling the narrative, mm-hmm. um, I, I, tend to, I, I, I tend to work with that. Maybe we can finish by talking about some of the projects that you're working on next. I know you have the Darling Foundry show in June. Um, well, I uh, I've been working and uh, for the last uh, six months, and will continue to over the next next uh, six months. My first institutional solo exhibition in Berlin will take place at the KW Berlin in February. Oh, that's a wonderful institution. Yeah, it's great. Um, in February of twenty. 20- 16 and that exhibition plans on traveling to other institutions throughout Europe before making its way home. What is it? Is it all of the work? It actually will be the first time that many of my works come together um, that I have been making over the last several years uh, and also be able to allow viewers to get a sense of the sort of novelistic approach to my practice. Necessary. Yeah, at this point, it's it is really necessary, <laughs> and so so it's exciting. It's really great that people will be able to follow this narrative in a way. Is it coming to Montreal? These are there plans? Well, uh, I can't say right now, but there are some conversations. So okay, we'll see. Yeah. Oh, that's that's fantastic. Well, we'll keep looking. I think that's good. <laughs> Um, thanks for taking the time to sit with Thank me today. Thank you. It was wonderful. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. My name is Yania Lee, and you've been listening to an Art Talks Montreal conversation with visual artist Hajra Wahid. You can follow the Art Talks podcast and find previous interviews on Tumblr and iTunes, or send an email to arttalksmtl at gmail.com. Talk to you soon.
Right on. Hey, buddy. <laughs>